Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Oaf, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you, Judges 6, 11 through 14. You may be seated. quick, in your program, you'll see something about uh, a couple, a missionary couple, Abe and Diane Bible, that will be visiting us uh, two weeks from this weekend. Um, I just love their name. If, if pastors could change their name like WWE wrestlers can, I think that was one of the ones I'd go with, the uh, last name being Bible. Uh, but they're going to be coming and uh, have several programs uh, uh, Saturday morning for the men, and then Sunday evening, and just a big celebration. It's right there in your program, but I just want to highlight that for you and invite you to participate and, and be a part of that. Uh, we are in a series called God is Stranger, where we're looking for God in all the unexpected places, taking some of the scriptures that are the unhighlighted bits, and really wrestling with what it might be sharing with us about who God is, who we are as God's creation, and how we are somehow to be in relationship with God. And so today we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon. And so if you want to take out your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 6, go ahead and do that. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one there in the pew for you. And if you don't have one at home, take that Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have that Bible. As pa Pastor Steve mentioned in his prayer, uh, this weekend is the ladies' retreat, which also happens to be Wife Appreciation Weekend. <laughs> and some people have gotten to know me over the last couple of years, and they're kind of come up to me and they said, is everything okay? And I just want you to know, my kids are alive. <laughs> they have clothes on their bodies today, okay? I don't know if my socks match, but you know, we're, we're doing okay with mom being gone at the ladies' retreat uh, this weekend. Now, we did have a little bit of a snafu. Yesterday, the kids wanted to go to the YMCA to swim, and I thought I did so well. I got all, everything packed up, you know, the swimsuits and everything. So many plans. Got it all. We got there. Lo and behold, I forgot the towels. But you know what? The paper towels in the restroom, they work just fine. <laughs> you know, of course, it might... My son, I'm saying, sorry, bub. And he's just like, it's okay, dad. It's okay. It's okay. I had a, a not okay moment uh, on Wednesday, actually. My two-year-old daughter 
was communicating to me she was getting my attention in the way that she knows how. She's two years old. And you guys know how the two-year-olds work. They are looking for the boundaries. They're looking to press the buttons. They're looking how far they can stretch things for their own behalf. And so my daughter was screaming, Daddy, 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 on repeat, which sounded like forever. And I was trying to finish off an email and send it away. And all I kept hearing, so finally in my frustration, I reacted. And... I know this does no good, but for some reason, my response, my reaction was to match her volume and the intensity that she was giving it back to me. Well, you know that does not do anything for the cause. But it was interesting to see how she was actually expecting me to act like an adult in that situation and not communicate in the same way that she's been communicating you see, she's a two-year-old, and everyone would expect her to act like a two-year-old, just like my seven-year-old, everyone expected acts like a seven-year-old. But now we're expecting the adult to act like an adult, and I got some problems with that. But great, thanks be to God, I have grace from all fronts. And that's how parenting, by and large, works, right? I need to accommodate the development and the level of growth that my kids have. My two-year-old's going to act like a two-year-old. My seven-year-old's going to act like a seven-year-old. And in that, I'm understanding and patient, trying to be, supposed to be, understanding, patient, accommodating, and in that, trying to figure out how I challenge, how I press a little bit back to help them learn and train and mature. But even though I'm the adult, even though I'm the parent, I'm finding that my kids are also going to have to reciprocate some of that grace because I am on my own journey when it comes to being a dad. When we are in relationships with each other, grace has to be a part of it. You have to extend grace mutually, no matter what level of, 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 of relationship that you might have with a person. Grace is inherently embedded into that Part. And the same is true, the same is true in our relationship with God. And I know that it's customary, we, we sang about the grace and mercy of the Lord. And through Jesus Christ, we have been lavished grace upon grace from Jesus Christ. And so we understand and we sing about the grace that comes from God towards us. But I wonder, I wonder, and I'm going to help us to think through this a little bit in the story of Gideon, I wonder if there are other angles and dynamics of grace, even from our behalf, when it comes to our relationship with God. So here we are in Judges chapter six, and I'm gonna give you a, a one minute fast forward through all, this is lots of scripture and lots of, lots of history, but the, here it goes. Pastor Steve left us with Jacob and the stranger God, if you remember that last week, okay? So Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons was Joseph. There's a lot of J names. I'm gonna get them mixed up. I know it. Someone's gonna send me an email on Monday. Joseph, coat of many colors, right? And he was not favored uh, by his, he was favored by his father, but despised by his brothers. They left him for dead. He was somehow rescued out of that, sold into slavery, made his way to Egypt, interpreted some dreams of Pharaoh, and suddenly was a, sitting pretty in, in, in Egypt, one of the superpowers of that day. A famine came across the land, and through uh, Joseph's wisdom, they had 
They had stored up all the grain in the land in anticipation because he knew that this was going to happen. And so when the famine hit the land, uh, people throughout the region made their way to, to Egypt, um, including Joseph's uh, father and, and family and brothers. So the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were in the land of Egypt. And over time, even though that particular pharaoh liked Joseph and was favorable to them, the other pharaohs down the line were not favorable and they despised them. And so the Hebrew people, the Israelites, God's people, wound up in slavery, harsh treatment of slavery, which led them to cry out to God. And God heard their cry and sent a particular figure named Moses, you, many of you know that name, to go and deliver the people. And, so it's, and through a series of miracles and, and plagues, they brought the people out of Egypt and they began to wander in the wilderness as they figured out, made their way to what, Jesus, what God said was the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. They're making their way, but they're wandering around as they're, as they're getting there. And in the process, they're figuring out who they are as a people, as a nation of people. They're figuring out how to be God's people. And there's a lot of difficult circumstances in the middle of that. Moses actually isn't able to make, make it fully to uh, the promised land, but uh, Joshua was able to. Did I get that J name right? Okay, I might get an email on Monday, I don't know. And so Joshua takes them and into the promised land, defeats the Canaanites who were occupying that land. And when we get to the book of Judges, Israel is beginning to settle in, to get a little cozy in the promised land. All good, right? Except that there were still lingering elements of the Canaanite people throughout the land, which meant that their religious practices, their belief systems were still around, hanging around in that area. And remember, God had called them to be in covenant with them, to be in a relationship with them, to be God's people. And so that presented a problem. And so in the book of Judges, we find a cycle of behavior and relationship between God and God's people. The people forget God and they sin, they they, they practice pagan uh, worship and idolatry. And it should be noted that the Canaanites' main, one of the main course of worship for them was child sacrifice. You can imagine God not, not being very happy with that. And so God would send a, a foreign army to set them straight. And through that opposing army and, and, the, and the situation that they found themselves in, they cried out to God for deliverance. And then God would send what's called a judge, which was not only a military figure, but also a religious figure. So they beat back the enemy armies, and then they would reestablish the covenant order among the people again. And the first three judges that we find in the book of Judges, everything's going okay. Everything's fine. And peace is throughout the land so long as the judge is alive. But something begins to change, uh, interestingly so, with Gideon. Now, Gideon, the story of Gideon starts off much in the same way. The people forget God, they reject God, they take up these other practices, and God sends the Midianites against them. And the Midianites' main tactic was to keep them in poverty, to uh, to steal away all of their crops, all their harvest, and their livestock. And so the Israelites, the God's people, are just trying to scrape it together to make ends meet. In fact, some of them flee to the hillside, to the mountains, just to try to make a living because things have gotten that bad, which is why in Judges chapter 6, we find Gideon threshing wheat 
but in a wine press. And the wine press was a, a, a damp, enclosed area. And to thresh wheat, you had to separate the wheat from the chaff, and the chaff was to blow away. So you needed a breezy place to do that. But, that, but, but Gideon didn't want to be in the open air. He's hiding from the Midianites. And so this is where we find Gideon when this stranger God appears to him. And, and he says this, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Which in the original day might have been a little bit funny because here he is hiding out. Gideon answered him in a very strange way but maybe some way that we might be able to identify with. But sir, if the Lord is with us, if what you say is true, why then has all this happened to us? Anybody resonate with this? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and and given us into the hand of Midian. Lord, why have you allowed this terrible thing to happen to me, to us? Where have you been? We've been counting on you, calling on you. You have been AWOL. Where have you been? And the rest of this story, just put a little bookmark into that. Because the rest of the story is going to give us a little perspective on that very question. Gideon, as we'll find out, is still trying to figure a lot out with God. And the immaturity of his faith really comes out. Because he begins, it continues to test God. God calls, is, is patient with this question. And he recalls to him what he wants. I want you to deliver my people from the Midianites. I want you to, to deliver them. And then he, he has to go back to God and, and, and question him again. He says he, resp- says, he responded, but sir, how can I deliver Israel? How can what you say be true? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. And yet God still is gracious to him, accommodating to him and continues to, to call, call him forth. And so it goes further on where uh, God is accommodating and gracious to him even though he, he goes back and, and he says, well, um, I know that you've called me But um, I just want to be sure some more. So then he says, um, further on in in verses 17 and 18, he says, "Then, then he said to him, if now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And so we have this questioning of God. We have this testing of God. We have this sort of, prove it to me, God, type of mentality. And it's really an exaggerated levels. And you get this idea, you begin to get this idea as a reader, man, this guy Gideon, what's, what's his problem? Like if an angel appeared to me and said, hey, mighty warrior, I'd be like, hey, all right, let's go. So you get sort of the ridiculousness of Gideon's 
faith and, and how he is uh, behaving before God. And yet God is still accommodating, still patient, still persistent. And he has this one last, he has this test where if you, he, he, God puts fire to this gift of, of meat and to, and to, bre- and to um, cakes. And God, so finally he's like, okay, I get it. I know who you are now. So God's graciousness pays off. And it leads to Gideon finally responding to God. And so Gideon goes up and he destroys the altar of the Canaanite god Baal, the pagan, pagan god Baal, and the Asherah pole there, that was there. And he did it at night. And so then the Midianites, well, they just get, um, they're just getting angry uh, about this. And so they begin to assemble their armies. They're gonna fight whoever's doing this. And so now it's time for Gideon as a judge to assemble his army as well. And after all of this, even though God has taken him through all of this and shown all this patience and all these signs, he said, well, hold on. You say that you're gonna deliver um, the, the, the people by my hand. Can I just make sure? I mean, can I just have another, another sign? And so he says, God, would you, I'm gonna put this fleece, this wool fleece, I'm gonna put it on the threshing floor. And I know it's dry there, but if that fleece ends up being wet from the dew, then I'm not, I'll know it's you. And God still accommodates him. God still is gracious in this situation. And be, lo and behold, the next morning, the fleece is, is wet. And he takes it further. He says, okay, but don't be angry with me. But let's just do this one more time. Just to be sure, I just want to double check. And so he says, this time I'm going to put it out in the ground where the dew makes the ground all wet. But if the, if the fleece is dry, then I'll know that what you say is true. And God does it. God comes through. But then a subtle shift takes place. And instead of Gideon putting God to the test, God begins to put Gideon to the test. You begin to say, see now that there is actually another side to this relationship. Gideon had assembled 32,000 soldiers and God as much as he was proud of that, God said, well, <clears throat> I just think you have too many soldiers. <laughs> and so he told them to whittle it down, and they ended up whittling it down to 10,000 soldiers, and God comes back to him again, nah, it's, it's still a little too much because I don't want you to come away from here saying that you are the ones. You are the ones that are able to boast in what you were able to do. I want you to know that this was done by my hand. And so as the story goes, they whittle it down to 300 soldiers. And the spies uh, sit, uh, Gideon and spies sit outside the Midian camp and they find out that the Midians, the Lord has caused great fear amongst the Midianites. And then they go back and they're excited and they say, the Lord is going to deliver us from, uh, from the Midianites. He's going to do this for us. And so they gather it all up. And then something very significant happens as Gideon gives his marching orders to his soldiers. He says this. He says, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me 
Then you also blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And what we find is this is the first trace of what God said he didn't want to have happen is actually happening. The Lord does deliver them in miraculous fashion. They surround the camp at night. They blow the trumpets in the middle of the night. They had torches in jars to conceal the light. And all of a sudden, as they're shouting and, 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 and blowing their horns, they break open the jars, and suddenly the camp is filled with this light from the torches. The Midianites wake up in the middle of their sleep. They're confused, and they, they're, in, they're in chaos, and they end up just in their own confusion, killing themselves. They didn't even have to do anything except light a torch. And God took care of the rest. But after that, after that miracle, after God fulfilling that promise, what we find in this story of two chapters in the story of Gideon, we find that God isn't really mentioned anymore. Yeah, people refer to the Lord in their speech, but we don't see God anymore in this story. And we begin to understand why. Because as God had initiated this conversation, as God had called out to Gideon to tell him what he wanted to accomplish, what we find is that God is no longer being given credit or glorified as a result of what God is doing. But instead, Gideon begins to take the glory and the honor for himself. He goes on. He's making his way to rout the Midianites. He is chasing two kings. And along the way, his soldiers, his 300 soldiers are tired and famished. And they stop by an Israelite city. And they ask for shelter and provisions. And the people of that city, they mock him. And he says, I'm going to remember this when I come back and I'm going to have my vengeance upon you. So he goes and they find the kings and it gets really dark and kind of bloody from there, just be honest. And then they make their way back and Gideon takes out his own personal vengeance on the Israelite people. And people are so caught up, his soldiers and everyone is so caught up in Gideon's success they completely forget that what God had done or giving God glory or credit and instead they want to prop up Gideon and they want to make him a king and not just a king, they want to make him, a di- they want to have a dynasty from all of his ancestors. And in this really interesting moment, Gideon appears to give a moment of humility before the Lord in saying, I'm not going to be your king. No, no, no. The Lord will be your king. But then Gideon goes out and he makes for himself out of the spoils of the, of the war, he makes for himself a golden ephod. An ephod was a cloak that a priest would wear before they are speaking as if they are representing God. And so while Gideon is denying the, king, the power of kingship, he is secretly taking on the same amount of power, but cloaked with religious authority. Think about that. 
And then they began to worship this golden ephod, just like the people had done in worshiping the golden calf. And you see this amazing and tragic movement of the story where God has great purpose for redemption of the people that cried out for them, to, to him. And God responds and God acts, even in the face of challenge and accusation and questioning and doubt, he still follows through. And yet in the course of that, we find that Gideon ultimately takes the credit for himself. And what this story does for us is that while it doesn't answer all of our questions, as we share the same opening question that Gideon had, where are you, God? Where have you been? Why weren't you there? Why didn't you stop my pain and my anguish and my suffering? Why didn't you show up when I wanted you to show up? Why were you not there? This story may not fully answer that for us, but what it does for us is this. It reminds us that our own perspective, our own side of the story is just that, a one side of the story. And what we get from this, from this text and from this story in the Bible is that there is another side, that there's a perspective of God. And as we look at all things being equal, we look at this and say, man, I know that Gideon was complaining about God being absent, and I know that later God is absent, but I can kind of understand what's happening here. That Gideon was... He wasn't living in the same relationship and covenant that God had, had called him to. I'm not sure exactly why God seems silent to us. And I'm certainly not going to answer that question with some sort of short bumper sticker type of theology. But one of the things that this story has done for me is to challenge me to remember that there is another side to this story, that there is another perspective, that while I'm in the midst of my own tragedy and pain and loss and challenge and difficulty, and it's sitting there right in front of my face, that's, that's all I can see, and sometimes it keeps me awake at night, it's all I can think about, that there is more to the story, that there is a bigger perspective that God is doing something bigger than what I can understand in my own little world. And that the silence that I get from God, maybe it's not necessarily a sign of God's absence, that maybe silence also can be a bit of grace as well. And I know that sounds ridiculous to say, but I learned a little bit about this when I was a school teacher. I was a missionary and I was a teacher in Haiti and I had no prior experience or training teaching. They just sort of threw me in there and so I was the best teacher alive on the planet. Um, no, I struggled with classroom management of all, I mean, that's the, the, the number one thing. And it, it was comforting to me to know that people that even got their masters, they still struggle in the first year with classroom management. But one of the tricks of the trade that I learned when I was teaching is that if the class was just chaotic and people weren't even paying attention, they were talking and there's all this mess. I would simply stand in front there and I would just be quiet. 
And I'd stand there long enough in silence that finally a hush would come over the classroom and they'd realize that, oh, wait, I need to be paying attention there. Have you ever been talking on your cell phone and the other person loses connection but you don't know it so you just keep on talking? (laughs) But there is that point, unless you're really one of those talkers, and maybe you are, but there is always that point where you realize, oh my gosh, there's silence on the silence on the other end. Hello? Are you there? Hello? Is that not what's happening in this story? That while God seems absent, God seems silent, God seems not there, it ultimately leads the people to say, God, where are you? God, I'm crying out to you. God, I'm looking for you now. I'm searching for you. I know that I, my focus and my attention was on these things before, but now I'm looking for you. Where are you? Author Tommy Tenney talks about this in his book called God Chasers, and it's the most amazing illustration. He talks about when he was playing hide-and-go-seek with his toddler. And the whole point, the whole point of playing hide-and-go-seek with his toddler was not so that he could hide and never be found, <laughs> But it was the joy and the delight that he would see in his toddler's face when he finally found his dad. And they would hug and and laugh together in that moment. And so when he would hide, he'd have that image in his mind. And so when he'd hide, he'd leave his foot sticking out behind the couch. Or he'd make little sounds from, from behind the curtain. The whole point was to be found in his hiding away. And he said, this is how God is. It only seems as though God is not there or that God has hidden himself away or that God has remained silent. But perhaps, maybe, just maybe, he has been doing so in order that he would be found. And in that, I wonder if there is a bit of grace there for us as well. So many times when we look at grace, we think of it in many ways like mercy. God, be merciful to me. Relieve me of my pain. Relieve me of my anguish. Relieve me of my guilt. Relieve me of my shame. And there's truth to that. But there is a fuller sense of grace that sometimes we don't appreciate, I think. And that as much as grace is there to to move us out of something, it is also there to propel us into something else. And that God's grace is there not just to save us from our sins, but to save us for a dynamic living relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, grace is not meant to stand in a vacuum. Grace goes. It is there to lead us into new endeavors, into new purposes, to lead us to become something that we haven't been before. Scriptures litter throughout this, but in the book of Romans, Paul, he addresses this dilemma that he had with the, with the church there because they really thought grace stood on its own. It, it, we just gotta have more grace. It's such a lovey-dovey feeling when, we've, when we stand on the victory that Jesus, that, that we are forgiven. And, and amen to that. There's so much truth. But, but in that day, and they were still getting, you know, figuring all this out, they thought, well, let's just keep sinning so we can go after that, that warm feeling again. 
And this is what Paul says. He says, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he goes on. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that, there's a so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. God lavishes his grace upon us so that we might propel into a new life that he has designed and created for us. Grace goes places. It leads on ahead. And there's all kinds of references to grace about how God acts undeservedly without any merit. God just simply acts. And it's all all grace. Comes in in the form of of, of, of gifts and, and graces. And so as much as God has called us to receive grace, God's grace also leads us into new places. And what we find in this, in this story of Gideon is that Gideon had a tremendous opportunity to not only, to, to, he obviously received God's grace, but he also had an opportunity to extend that same grace that God gave him. You know those cities that mocked him? As much as God was so gracious to Gideon in his testing and his doubting and his questioning of God, he could not do the same thing for those cities and instead sought out his own vengeance. Instead of taking that opportunity to lavish a certain grace this past week, instead of understanding what my daughter, that she's two-year-old and that, that I need to respond with that grace in mind, I, instead I just reacted out of my own sense of rightness and frustration, matching the volume of her voice. And it didn't do anything. Grace goes out from us onto the world. Gifts, spiritual gifts are referenced as grace. Grace is a common greeting that we find in the New Testament letters. Grace and peace to you. Paul talks about Philippians 1, about how we share in this grace. Grace is something that is given to us, but not hoarded, but then distributed out. And not so much as, um, as, as a task list or sort of a, even a Christian practice, but, but something that really comes directly from him. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about a, a sponge, and, and that grace is that, that thing that it, it comes from God, and so the invitation that God gives to us is to be soaked in it. I mean, just let God's grace come over us and saturate us from head to toe. And then when it comes time, when we feel pressed in, crushed, squeezed in by life, that is the exact moment when we pour out that grace to others. 
I mean, think about it. It's easy to be gracious when everything's going your way. It's easier to be gracious when we have everything that we wanted. It's easier to be gracious when we're in a good mood. But it's exactly those times when we're pressed in, when we're challenged, when we're not getting our way, when we're squeezed by life. That's the opportunity when God's grace pours out of us into the world. When your daughter is screaming at you constantly, that's the moment where grace can pour out of you onto that other person. That's the opportunity for grace. And so your invitation today is simply allow yourself to soak in the grace of Jesus Christ. John talks about Christ in this way in in chapter 1, verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, double portion of grace, lavished in grace, more and more grace to the point where you are overflowing that when life presses in on you, you pour it out to those around you and to the world that God loves. Let his grace saturate in your heart and your life. Let his grace be enough for you. Open your heart that instead of right fighting and winning the argument, let God's grace pour out in those moments. Let me pray for us. Holy God, Lord, instead of praying that we might be people of of your grace as a a task item on a to-do list, Lord, I pray first and foremost that, that we would be people of grace because we have opened up our hearts and allowed you to saturate us with your love and your grace and your mercy. Let us be a sponge. Let us soak in it so that we can take in your fullness. And when we are pressed in, when we are challenged, when we are confused, Lord, let that be the time when we pour it out to those around us and to the world. We ask this, Lord, not according to our own effort or strength, because of you. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue to just soak in the grace of our God and celebrate Thanksgiving, his grace given to us, would you sing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Thank you.
So when you leave the, the doors of this place, let each step, everything that you do, every circumstance you're in, let it be soaked in the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who offers it freely without work, without merit. It is a gift from God. Soak in it and share it with the world. In the name of Jesus, go in his name. Amen. Amen.